Okay, Joe, let's record a precautionary pre-roll. This may be inserted in the beginning of the at the beginning of the program today. Just to make sure that we appropriately introduce our guest. Yes. Uh, I don't think we said that Farrah Peterson, who is our guest, uh, is at the University of Virginia Law School. Yeah, but, we, but, we've got to say that because there's no other way someone could possibly figure that out. <laughs> like by looking in the show notes or by Googling a name or any of yeah. those other things. Yeah. I mean, certainly not if we were living in the, the 1790s to 1820s in this mm. great information vacuum. I mean, Good point. You'd have to go look at some official register at the University of Virginia to <laughs> find her name written in some book. But happily and luckily, unfortunately, our guest was Farrah Peterson from the University of Virginia Law School. What a great conversation. Yeah. That our listeners are about to enjoy. Okay. Is there anything else? Because this is the second pre-roll. I imagine this will go in, but we already talked about Dark Sky. Yeah, so we don't need to do that. Yeah, what else do we need to talk about? I think let's just let's just roll. Let's just roll just with it. Just roll with it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the listeners have been starved of world argument for the past two weeks. You two, 18, I can't quite remember, but yeah. They, and they're like, I need a meal. Yeah, so here. Right, okay. Let's go. Pre-roll time. Because this, this would be a pre-pre-roll as opposed to a post-pre-roll. Yeah, a true pre-roll, an authentic. A, what, what, what's the word? A U-pre-roll, E-U. Oh, like a true or a, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're rusty. There's a bit of rust. Creek, creek. So much has happened. Yeah, we should say uh, for listeners, uh, the date is Friday, August 24. Four? Okay. Yeah, this is obviously, this is a, this show is going to be quick as a whippersnapper. <laughs> <laughs> Friday. No, but I say August that only because you 24. don't know what's going to happen between now and the time when someone hears yeah. it, and they might think, "Why aren't they talking we, we about always, that?" That's right. We always need to provide a uh, an audio timestamp. Yeah, yeah. Something came up today. I was going to ask you about. And now I forget came what it up is. Today? Yeah, I mean, it's I was, only ten o'clock. I How would it have come up today? I was thinking there was a thing. It was going to. Oh, I know what it is. This is very important. Have you? Have, do you use Dark Sky the app? The weather app? Yeah, the weather app. They've, done, they've, re, uh, they've revamped it. What do you think of the update? I like it. Uh, I like it okay. I can't stand it. <laughs> it's a bit fancier. I think I even blogged about Dark... And you know, when I used to do the blog all the time, I think I had a post about Dark Sky at one point about, you know, the nature of like really good apps. Because yeah. the first version of Dark Sky, I thought just nailed it. Yeah, I thought it was simple. The interface, it was focused on the weather for the next hour. Yeah, it was very minimalist. Um, it was minimal, minimalist. So as to maximally minimalist, and had this, and gr- this isn't this isn't even maximally minimalist. This is minimally mil- maximalist. Now. So <laughs> I the, guess so. Well, it's like every other weather app. It, it looks like a generic weather app. It has like parity between iPhone and Android. Yeah. It's just all right. It, let's try again. I, I will try again. I just want to say though, like the original Dark Sky was so great because it had that that chart over the next hour of the rain, yeah, and, it would, and it would wiggle, it would oh. wiggle to indicate uncertainty. Okay, she's calling. I'm going to answer. Farah. Hi. Hey, it's Christian. Hi, Christian. And Joe. Hi, Joe. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Farah, to talk about your paper, uh, Interpretation as Statecraft. Oh, you're just going to launch right into it, huh? Uh, Well, I'm just, I'm thanking her for joining us. We we can talk about it, you know, in our delightful way, but if you think I'm being too... uh, too eager and launchy. No, no, take it away. I'm just going to sit back. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, this is like being on car talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. We both have facial hair, too. Oh my goodness! Okay, um, uh, you'll have to excuse any scratchiness in my voice. I'm just recovering from pneumonia. Oh my goodness! Oh my god! Well, I'm. Yeah. 
I'm glad to hear that you're feeling well enough to talk with us. I feel bad that we're we're uh, that things didn't work out that we could have given you more time or something. Because I don't know, <laughs> pneumonia sounds serious. Isn't pneumonia really serious? Yes, you know, it's one of those things. Um, my husband and I work on the principle that one has to do all the work one can in the day one has because you never know whether tomorrow will uh, bring an illness, a child home from school, um, an apocalypse of one kind or another. Um, <laughs> so I can talk today. Let's talk. Yeah. What what an excellent attitude. Yeah. You know, I was just reading. Um, great uh, way to live. On the way back from a trip, I, I listened to The Emperor of All Maladies, the great book. Um, I forget the author's name. I'm going to blank on it. about the history of cancer. The history of cancer. Research. It's just such a good book. And, and he refers to a book by someone else. I can't remember her name, but you know, which makes this distinction. Like there's this, there's this like society of the well and society of the sick and, and like you're in one and then all of a sudden another day you're in a completely different culture, right? You're just, it just, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of like that, that kind of thing, right? Like today I can, I can talk on a podcast and it's a regular day. I'm having my morning smoothie and right. sitting here, sitting across from Joe, like we have many times before. And then, you know, anytime something can happen and right. it's, you, you, and there are various reactions you can have to that, right? You can be yeah, so miserable. Yeah, can be a very yeah. positive right. um, view of life or it can be a very dark view of life. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we, treat it, we treat it as a positive view. Excellent. Well, the thing that caught my eye uh, about, about the paper. He's turning back toward the paper. This is great. I think it's time to get on with it. I agree, Joe. I agree. I endorse your turning back toward the paper. This is great. <laughs> the, the thing that caught my eye, and again, it's uh, Interpretation as Statecraft is the main title. And then I think it's, what is the subtitle? Chancellor Kent in a Collaborative Era? Or I'm getting some of the words, but not all the yes, words. Yes, exactly. The Collaborative Era of, of American Statutory Interpretation. Thank you. Uh, so the thing that caught my eye about it was because, well, in part because, you know, we on a, in a recent conversation we had uh, with a, a, a scholar of the petitioning process in the early Congress. Maggie McKinley. Uh, Maggie McKinley, thank you. Um, I had Maggie, but I didn't have McKinley, so thank you for jumping in. Um, You know, it's so interesting to hear about things going on in that formative period uh, in our in, in the country's history because I, I learned a lot uh, from that, uh, reading that uh, work, and because it really does affect uh, contemporary questions very much, how things have been done in the past, it, it widens your, the scope of your imagination of the possibilities for how to approach exactly. certain legal activities. And so her connection between petitioning and the administrative state, it was just super fascinating. So that, oh, here's another uh, historical paper f- that focuses on a similar time period and that is going to help me understand better the full range of possibilities for how judges should interpret statutes and talk about a matter of contemporary concern. It's basically always, you know, if you've got judges and you've got statutes, this is something you need to figure out. Well, what's out. interesting, right, is her paper, Maggie McKinley's paper, kind of smears out the institutional role of legislatures and indicates that they were actually much more adjudicative right. and individual case focused. Well, this is and, the second way in like which... The, yeah, this is right. the flip side. I, I've thought the same thing, right? right. Your paper, Farah, very much take, looks at judges and kind of smears them out institutionally in a way that kind of defies kind of modern sensibilities about judges to say they were much more... You know, they they were much more into policymaking, right? It, legislative style policymaking. And they did it through these various uh, mechanisms. But I, I see the two pieces as very, like, I feel like I have a much better education about this period after reading these two articles. Uh, well, absolutely. There's, there is this um, inversion of roles 
between what we would expect of a legislature and what we would expect of a judge. And part of what you have to um, you have to think about when you're looking into the past is institutional capabilities that are very different from what we expect of our institutions today. So something as simple as institutional memory really determines how something like a legislature can function. At a time when legislatures are turning over every year, uh, they have, you know, in many states, very frequent elections, and where record keeping is spotty, um, a legislature really can't make a law that lasts and that is coherent. Um, by contrast, where you have uh, tenure in the judiciary, so one person could be in charge of interpreting laws for 20 years at a time, that institution is much better placed to have the memory to, to um, create coherent sort of uh, strands of law or areas of law and to make sure that they stay coherent over time. Um, and so it's a matter of um, attitude, certainly, and expectations, but also simply of institutional competence. Um, and when you're looking into the past, of course, historians always wonder, am I seeing what existed at the time, or am I only seeing those few pieces of paper that lasted this long? Mm. Um, but what becomes clear is there were certain things that people in the early 19th century did do, um, like uh, uh, the, the first reporters of, of um, judicial decisions that came out of some of these important jurisdictions that I talk about. And certain things they didn't do. Um, for example, legislatures keeping records of which laws they passed last year. And you can, um, you can have a, a logical um, you know, judgment about what that might mean for how society is run that is borne out when you see how people talk about these institutions and what they're actually doing. So, so can you help me? Let's maybe start by like painting a picture of what the kind of legislature the legislative process leading to a, a, um, a judicial action might have looked like, and like in the period you focus on, like 1800, 1820-ish, um, and and just maybe taking New York, since you focus much of the paper, not all the paper, but much of the paper on New York and, and Kent. Um, so so I, I looked it up, and the legislature is in session for basically February and March, you know, a, little, a week earlier in January, a week later in April, um, and then and then they are called into session to elect electors, presidential electors. So you'll see a brief session in November. But basically, it's not in session very much. And yeah. there's this flurry of activity. And so how does this – do they actually pass laws? And then I, you, you meant, there's a whole part of the paper where you talk about these like rather, I don't know, grotesque Scrivener's errors, <laughs> like whole blank <laughs> lines that are there. But so do they write these – the laws they were passing down on – a piece of paper and then copies were made and then put into a folio or something? How did, how did we get from written, first of all, how were written laws taken down? And then how did judges in cases later adjudicating those get them? Were these, were, was it people's memories of what these things said or were there folios sent over? How did, do, you, do you have an idea about how this actually worked? Sure. Um, so the vast majority of laws that um, early legislatures like early New York passed were private bills. And a private bill happens when a citizen like you or me um, goes to the legislature and says, you know what, I really need a divorce. Um, so I need you to debate and decide whether I deserve to get a divorce. Um, and the legislature would talk about it. And if the, if the person was influential with some legislators or had a really compelling claim or simply they were you know, in the mood to grant that favor, 
um, they would write a bill saying, okay, Mary and John can get a divorce. Um, then if that bill had to be interpreted later by a court of law, there were special uh, rules of interpretation that applied only to private acts. Now, again, this is the vast majority of acts that legislatures were involved in, um, acts for divorce or acts saying, you, um, Mr. Smith, can build a turnpike uh, under these circumstances through this plot of land. Or you can start a corporation that's a banking corporation, and it has this particular set of parameters. If you wanted to assert rights under a private bill like that, um, rules going back to, to English rules of procedure required that you actually bring a copy of that bill into court with you because the court could not take cognizance of a private bill um, without seeing an official copy. And the people who are most likely, or even the only people who had those copies, um, might be the people to whom the bill applied. Seems sensible that you would rely on, I mean, they're the ones most interested in maintaining and preserving whatever rights it affords, this private bill. So it makes sense we would look to them to provide it. And most interested in providing fake bills. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose there's that. (laughs) Now, we also know that there were records kept um, of of both private and public bills um, because people like Kent and Radcliffe were hired to revise them and to go through them. But when you read their recollections of what that job was like, it really sounds like they opened up an attic room that was filled with musty papers, right. some of which had, you know, coffee stains on them or the, the analog back then, and some of which had been chewed on by the dog. And they had to sort through them and decide, wait, what year was this? Um, wait, this is kind of in the same topic as this one, so let's put this in this pile and figure out whether they conflict or not. And that's what that job entailed. So. There were records, but they were sort of thrown in one place, um, not not separated um, very well by year or subject. And then the legislature would have to hire an outside contractor, usually a local judge, um, to make sense of it once every 10 or 20 years. Wow. So, so if I were litigating in those days uh, in one of maybe those somewhat rare cases involving a public bill, mm-hmm. and, and we should we should talk a little bit later about how like the overall social projects of the time might kind of influence institutional form because canal building in New York was like the seems to have been the major project at that time. Yeah, uh, at least well, in, it might have been one of the major projects in the United States at the time. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, it's you know a growing country, et cetera. You can imagine why. Um, and and a lot of the cases that you cite involving public bills involve disputes over statutes relating to canal building. But so so would it be the case that I have a memory as a litigant? or as a lawyer, that there was a public bill that was passed five years ago that might relate to this, and so I go and I search in the attic of the legislature to find this, or so, so that maybe I show up with one piece of paper and my opponent shows up with a different piece of paper, or we or, or we have testimony about what we think happened, or are we restricted to citing whatever the current, like, contracted out um, restatement of the statutory law is? How did this work? You're saying for public bills, yeah, as opposed to private pure, bills? Purely for public bills, yeah. Yeah, public bills would be recorded and kept in a book in the legislative house. And the judges had access to that. Um, you know, they would send an errand boy over to copy it if they needed it. Um, the, the, the lawyers could also go and consult it. And judges were allowed to take cognizance of something on the books that was a public act. The, you know, with a bill that is as important as bills having to do with the construction of the Erie Canal, 
I would think, I don't know, because I, I actually, m many of these records were lost in a tragic um, archive fire in Albany in the 50s. Mm. But it, it seemed as though every litigant in those pieces of litigation had a co coherent and consistent view of what the law said. Um, huh. So I, I think that those records were pretty easy to find. And canonical, right? I mean, there was, like you say, there was like one book and that was the official, like everyone agreed on what the official uh, text of, of a bill was, you know, if they, even and though they, that, yeah. that they may be because those bills were immediately put into effect and they were passed around the same time, mm -hmm. you know, so from um, uh, 1817 to 1820, um, several bills regarding the Erie Canal were passed and then immediately people started using them. Um, and started litigating over them because they involved takings of private property. Uh, so they were, uh, you know, in, in current use. A public bill that's about some obscure provision of inheritance law or something else like that might have posed a bigger challenge. Yeah, because there was, there was probably not an index. I mean, the, even though you exactly. could maybe get the book, you wouldn't know that there was something to look for or where to look for it until someone like... Um, some of the people that you write about, Kent and others, perform the job of doing what sound like restatements of the statutory law. Exactly. Now, yeah. ca in case law at this time, the the system for uh, re re reporting case outcomes, where is that in its level of sophistication at this same point in time? My my intuition is that it was a little more sophisticated by that point already. But, but well, I might be wrong about that. Actually, no. It it very much varies by jurisdiction. Ah. And one of the one of the things that uh, these judges that I call the most important judges of their generation did was hire reporters, and either pay them themselves or pay them out of the public fisc. Um, but find a likely young lawyer who could perform the difficult work of taking shorthand notes accurately, and then. Um, you know, shepherding it through the process of going from those notes to the printer and then distributing um, book copies of their opinions. And Kent did this because he had a vision for New York that involved a coherent, consistent law in which people could refer to his opinions and, and see what he had decided in the past. Um, but before Kent took the bench, there was, there were no, there was no reporting. And in other jurisdictions, uh, reporting was very spotty. What would happen is in a um, controversial case, a local newspaper reporter would come to court and would take shorthand notes. And we'd know what the court said and what the judgment is because it would be published in the local newspaper. The original meaning of reporter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite literally. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that is how the public would find out about what, and, and you know, members of the public of the public that we can access now as historians, the readerly, writerly public, um, seem to be very interested in the outcomes of cases uh, that that bore on public policy projects like the Erie Canal and also on political issues. And so the entire, sometimes the arguments of the lawyers and then also the court opinion would be published in a newspaper that you could buy as just a regular New Yorker. But that is the way that most people would read these opinions. And then if you want, if you were a lawyer, a professional, and you wanted to get access to um, all of the opinions that had been recorded by, uh, you know, Chancellor Kent's personal reporter, Johnson, you would have to buy a subscription. Hmm. 
to, um, so they would only print as many copies as they had subscribers and um, maybe a few extra, you know, and they would send them to their subscribers. There was also, there were two early um, American law reviews. The American Law Journal, I think it was called, started, um, started publication in 1808. And that journal would say to its subscribers, please send us opinions, send us statutes, hmm. send, us, send us things of interest from your jurisdictions. And so they would get a smattering of, you know, the collected statutes of Maryland from this year or um, an interesting case coming out of South Carolina or an interesting charge to the jury from somewhere else that had been transcribed or pu and published in the newspaper or simply transcribed by an interested lawyer and then sent into the law review as something that ought to be read by and, and to influence lawyers across the country who are also subscribers of this law review. And that's another way that we historians know um, the kinds of things that were happening and that this kind of information might have been disseminated. That's so funny. I saw um, this week on Twitter, someone posted a an entry from the 1870s from the journal Nature, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was uh, just a couple of paragraphs. And it was basically just some dude who saw a meteor <laughs> who wrote in and said, guess what, I, <laughs> guess what I saw a meteor? And the, the comment was how much easier it was to get published in Nature <laughs> in 1870, right? But, like just this idea, you know, when information is not out there, like just searching for let's get all the information we can which right. may be relevant to this audience in this one journal um, so it really highlights the what you've just described really highlights the sort of um, the empty space that is there to be filled by I guess you know wave number one uh, for American lawyers might be a Blackstone um, mm -hmm. but wave number two is Kent's commentaries exactly because there's this sort of this thirst for information Right. And the only very rudimentary existing methods for gathering information about the thing that's happening right now. And so in instead of having a bunch of things that are telling you what's happening right now, you have these larger, more considered tomes that gather together and synthesize a long course of conduct with some principles and talking about how they play out in various contexts, which is, you know, the Blackstone commentaries, the Kent's commentaries. Um, the, the, there really is just a huge intellectual space to be filled that they step right into. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's fitting in an era when people didn't think of law as positivist, when people didn't, it was, it's pre-realism. You know, uh, people thought of these legal principles as, at their base, expressions of a natural justice that they could work their way th to through, um, you know, reading the old cases of old English judges, their common sense that was an educated common sense, a, a common sense that was um, constructed out of having been steeped in Blackstone and other classic works. Um, and a, a sort of patriotic understanding of um, the rights and duties in deriving from English constitutionalism. Um, in that context, law is not simply what was decided in the last 30 years as it is now. Law was a set of principles that judges and lawyers together would have to work toward. And so you see in early reporters, including in the earliest Supreme Court reporters, the Cranch and Wheaton, um, before you read the, the opinion of the court, you read all of the arguments of counsel 
because those were as helpful at coming to a conclusion about what the law is as the opinions themselves. Um, and, you know, in, when you read the transcripts of early uh, trials or, or oral arguments that were important enough to be recorded in the um, circuit courts, um, the lower federal courts or in state courts, um, you see judges and lawyers together really working hard to come to the conclusions about what is the law in these open areas and and trading references to old English cases that, you know, a, a lawyer will have the book and the judge won't have been able to read it and will ask the lawyer, oh, lend me your copy so I can consult hmm. that source, you know, and um, working together to come to a conclusion. I mean, you also see this in the um, foundation of early law schools. A law school like Yale Law School would simply be one person's library or several people's libraries combined. Um, you know, four lawyers get together. They each have a series of books that um, collect old English cases or, or something uh, like Hale's or, or Cook's treatises. And books are, are not that easy to come by. Um, and where you've got a bunch of them together, you have a law school because you have a place to gather, to consult your sources, and to talk to your colleagues um, and to train your, uh, your apprentices. Uh, so you're absolutely right that this, this sort of space in which people are thirsting for information and trading it um, in these piecemeal ways really determines, along with the sensibility that the law is an eternal structure, that they can work toward determines the character of, of early American adjudication and, and early American arguments about law. Now there was though, even then, and uh, interestingly, the view that you have on this may depend on the institutional role you occupy. And you, you kind of trace out how, how some people change their views as they change their institutional role. There, there, there was still this duality uh, uh, where some people uh, would, would expound and maybe everyone at various times would expound that the legislature is supreme, right? It is the, it has that democratic underpinning just like today. And, and at other times that of course um, the, the legislature is a participant in making this coherent, scheme of law, which is in its totality as if enacted by a single rational mind, right? And, um, and those two things don't always go together. Uh, and, and it's interesting that, um, that, that the, the strength with which one would propound this view about legislative supremacy versus legal rationality or, or, or naturalness seems to depend on like your experiences. And, um, and so maybe there's like one more institutional difference or one like institutional wrinkle here that we should cover before we get into the nature of legal interpretation as it was conceived at the time. And that's these, um, like, uh, Kent participated in this, um, strange review board, which was not, you know, there wasn't just an executive veto. There was also this layer above the legislature, which could kind of pass on laws. And it consisted of, of Kent, uh, some executive officials and some judges. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so the Council of Revision in New York, which was made up of the chancellor, um, some judges of the Supreme Court, and uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor. Um, wait, maybe I've got that wrong. There were five members, lieutenant governor, governor, chancellor, and maybe two senators. Hmm. Um, the, the, the I can't remember exactly. Yeah. It's escaping me. Um, but they would review legislation before it became law. And they would have a majority, a majority vote of this, this body of five would be able to veto it. Um, they would then write a memo to the legislature explaining their veto. 
um, and trying to persuade the legislature to reconsider. And most of the time, the legislature would follow their advice. If the legislature did not agree, then the legislature could override their veto by a two-thirds majority. Now, if, they, if, the, if the legislature decided to redraft instead, would they have to send back their redraft for a fresh look? Yes. Okay. Yes. So some of what could happen, you might get them to rewrite it. Like maybe they'll just drop the thing that seems, you know, obnoxious or whatever. Exactly. And, and that did happen. You know, um, Kent would write back to the um, legislature saying, there's no compensation for takings in this statute. He knew that if the statute came before him, he would have to add one. <laughs> so uh, they might as well do it uh, before it came into court. Um, and so things would be sent back for that purpose. So there's this much more kind of cooperative institutional picture rather than e- even though the separation of powers is, you know, it is there in the Federalist Papers in the original design of the U.S. Constitution in a lot of states. Right. That it's not as though this is a foreign concept, but what that what separation of powers means seems to be really different in this era where the lines were either differently drawn or blurrier in some er- in some areas and where you have institutional actors like Kent who are occupying all of these roles at different times and sometimes at the same time. And it, it, it shapes their viewpoints. I mean, yeah, go ahead. John. Let, yeah, let yeah. me just leap in to say there's this very because you just used a, a phrase, uh, Christian, separation of powers that that is so um, freighted with meaning and experience Today. And for some of the reasons that, um, yeah. that that you just pointed out. But there's this point in Ferris paper, it's toward the end, where on one page she references separation of powers and on the next page she s- says something like separate powers. Hmm. And so I feel like it's almost like if you're – depending on how you cash out as a matter of institutional lived practice – what it means for powers to be separate. You could say separation of powers, but you could also just say separateness of powers to to allow for a bit more interweaving of the power. Separation means sound like you go over there and I'm going to go over there, right? As opposed to, yeah, they're separate, but of course we're all collaborating. Um, and, and in the steep way, like we, like we learned with Maggie McKinley's paper, right? How, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Um, What's the most famous case in all of constitutional law? Marbury versus <laughs> Marbury, Madison. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just taught it the other week, actually. Uh, uh, yeah, it's getting older. Um, how Marbury against Madison, right, proceeded, was proceeding at the same time in the legislature. Right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and so the separ- it, was, it wasn't as though there, were, like, there was a separation of issues and, and they were always like perfectly sorted into different right. spheres. But, but I think that maybe a way of cashing out what you said, and I don't know if this is accurate or not or whether anybody conceived of it this way, is that whatever the court was doing in Mapper versus Madison, like it was its separate obligation to do that thing or separate task. And so the legislature couldn't interfere with that, even if it could adjudicate its own version of Marbury versus Madison. I don't know exactly how that all meshed together, but I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that looking at early cases like Marbury v. Madison and other um, major martial court opinions even shows you is how differently judges viewed their role. I mean, people look at it in bemusement. You just taught it, so I'm sure you remember that he did not, that Marshall did not have to go into uh, the decision as to whether the, the commission actually had to be, had to be delivered at all. Right. He could have simply started and ended with the jurisdictional point and, and been done with it. Um, but again and again, in Marshall's opinions, he um, goes into issues that we would consider today to be advisory. He um, borrows trouble from later 
uh, later circumstances. He, he decides what doesn't need to be decided. Um, and sometimes he even got into trouble for doing things like that. For example, in, um, it was a 1805 or 1806 opinion that had to do with habeas corpus of some of Aaron Burr's Confederates. On appeal of their motion to dismiss uh, the charges against them and, and to be released from detention, all he had to decide was whether there was probable cause to, to charge them with treason. He could have just said, you know, whatever treason is, this isn't it. You guys are free to go. Instead, he um, gives a fulsome definition of treason that is very confusing and hard to follow. The following year, uh, Marshall is sitting at, in, as a circuit court justice because the circuit courts then had original jurisdiction over major crimes. He's sitting as the judge um, presiding over Aaron Burr's actual treason trial, and he's faced with the task of interpreting his own words <laughs> in that earlier Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. And, um, and he's faced with these very brilliant lawyers who are saying things to, to him like, you know, the Supreme Court didn't have to go into that. And so you can disregard it. Um, that was dicta. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and it was confusing. And let's have a big argument about what Chief Justice Marshall meant right in front of, you know, trial judge Marshall. And you see him writing in panic to his um, to his colleague, Bushrod Washington, saying, hey, um, friend, fellow Supreme Court justice, I know this is kind of inappropriate, but what? what did I mean <laughs> when, I, when I, when I said those things? And so, and he explains, he has to defend himself to the lawyers in front of him in the Aaron Burr trial saying, uh, yes, it's true. I didn't have to describe treason in that case, but, uh, he doesn't say I, he says, we, uh, we decided to, because it's so rare that we get cases about that. And of course it would have been useful to know what the Supreme court would say on issues that might arise in the future. And you see, both the Supreme Court and lower courts um, of a stature like Kent's um, reaching forward to issues that they can that are tangentially related, that are on topic um, when they talk about the cases before them, using cases and controversies to, um, you know, create bodies, create many, many treatises on bodies of law that can be then passed around and reported to different parts of the country and seed a a conversation about what should the American version of this old English line of law be. And again, I think in an environment where people are so hungry for information about how things are actually going to work, it makes all the sense in the world to think you would, you if it even occurred to you as a judge to think, well, maybe I should say a little bit less, right? Uh, less is more. Um, mm -hmm. But if it even occurred to you to think that, you sort of bowl right past it, right? Say, you know, well, maybe less is more sometimes, but right now more is more. Like we right. need, like people are, we really need to know. And so, of course, I'm going to be thoughtful and I'm going to make my best effort and I'm smart. And so here you go. Yeah. But right? how, how much is instrumental like that? And how much is, because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this uh, idea of conversational implicature, right? Where in ordinary conversation, um, we interpret what people say you know, in, um, according to a series of norms, right, about, you know, when they would omit things, when they would say things that, that are a little bit different from the judicial, like, I'm not going to say anything if it's, uh, if it's not necessary to the outcome. Oftentimes we add a little bit more, right, in context in ordinary conversation. And so I, I'm wondering how, how much of the, um, uh, this, this reaching out to decide things, as we would refer to it now, 
it stems from a like a conviction that the law is an expression of a group rational mind. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how would that mind express itself here? It, it wouldn't, you know, if, if there were, if there were a, uh, an entity called the law and it were talking to you about this case, it, it would, you know, talk like the rest of us talk, which is about the issue, right? It would give a fulsome um, account of, of, of why things are the way they are. I, I want to justify what I'm saying, but also I have these other thoughts which are relevant and why not share them now? Um, so how much is that? How much is like instrumental? Like Joe was saying, like we need to build out the law. We need to add more information to the, to the database here because we, do, we don't have enough right now. Um, and uh, maybe how much was just purely political? Like here's my chance. I'm going to seize my chance to decide <laughs> these things. I, I, it's interesting. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not clear on, and maybe that's because there were multiple actors with multiple motives um, here. But um, how, how do they – do you have a sense of how they thought about this, how they thought about what to say and how much stemmed from this like natural law or at least uh, singular rational mind view of law and how much stemmed from uh, this desire to fill an information vacuum or, or something else? Um, well, so part of it is uh, what the professional nature of writing law looked like back then because – there's not um, shepherdization and Westlaw. Um, a legal opinion does not read as one citation after another, one quote after another. In fact, there are very few quotes um, in a legal opinion. Um, most of it is simply um, the judge having digested um, the arguments of counsel and having read some old English reporters and some of the reported cases of his colleagues in other states uh, holds forth. And when you're holding forth, you have to build an argument that's persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, to, you have to sound logical and you have to sound fair. Um, and, you know, these, there would be these long paragraphs that don't cite anything, followed by brief paragraphs citing, um, you know, English reporters or cases from New York or from other jurisdictions for the general prin- that are supportive of the general principles and that might have come up in arguments, followed by another long paragraph that doesn't cite anything but is persuasive. And, um, you know, today it's still important for judges to persuade people that they have you know, fully heard all of the arguments of counsel and are concerned with the rights of even the losing party um, and um, are guarding the losing party's rights as well as the, the winning party's rights um, in a project to further the rule of law. Um, it's still important. But back then, <laughs> where these republics had just been started within the living memory of the people arguing before the court, and there was a sense that they might not last, and by republics I mean the states, because mm-hmm. that's what most people thought of as their nation. It was much more important for the judge to telegraph this this institution has gravitas. This institution um, is basing its judgments on something bigger than Mm. simply how I feel. And uh, we take your rights seriously. Uh, So that was also it's, it's both a matter of what did they have access to? What was their sort of state building project at the time? And also a, a culture of adjudication that involved explanation and persuasion, not just assertion of the law. Suppose they also might have thought, um, if if we using a, a sort of a modern lens, but thinking, you know, it, what is the cost of saying more now? Well, mm-hmm. if the thing I would say a year from now is much the same as the thing I will say now, the cost of saying it now seems quite low. 
right? And now in fact, you, it avoids costs. If other people right. can read it, um, then they can avoid the behavior that's going to bring more cases into court. Whereas if you think that, well, look, a year is a long time, and a year from now I might say something very different. Mm-hmm. Well, now saying, then I'm boxing myself in if I talk now. Or, or my colleague mm-hmm. will cite what I said in a way that I didn't anticipate. So Right. right. So the Marshall story is sort of a funny, the, the, the Marshall treason definition story is sort of a funny um it, it it may be that relative to the the frequently encountered questions of tort or contract or other sorts of things, uh, which would I think be more in what Kent is hearing on a regular basis, as uh, in state court, um, the, the the Marshall thing is the exception, not the rule. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's an instance where oh crap, <laughs> a year later things look kind of different to me. And by the right. way, by the way, like like Marshall, I think we all need a colleague who we can ask like. What did I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> about, about any of the yes. things that we've written. Well, yeah. Christian, if you ever, mm-hmm. henceforth, if you ever get an email from me that starts, Dear Bushrod, uh, you you know why I'm sending it to you. Because <laughs> uh, I need to figure out what the hell I meant. I just um, assume that you always want to figure that out. Like, well, and vice yeah, versa. Enough. Yeah. No, actually, the, the, uh, the problem that you're talking about of worrying that next year you're going to mean something different, that, that very concern. I don't see a lot of it in early judiciaries, but um, I, I'm writing a book about the history of, of statutory interpretation and the history of legislation over the course of the 19th century. And you really see that kind of concern crop up in legislatures when they are debating whether to pass legislation that will allow, or, or when constitutional conventions are gathering to debate whether they should make um, corporations something that anybody can simply um you know, sign a paper and create like like we can today, instead of having to appeal to the legislature on a case by case basis. There's a sense that well, if anybody can start a bank just by filling out the right paperwork and paying a fee, um, or if corporations are defined by a public law instead of by the petition process, then we're going to lose control over um, this huge amount of what seemed to them at the time governmental power. Where people are going to be building roads willy-nilly and, and uh, you know, issuing paper notes. And, and we're going to have no ability to rein that in if suddenly we change our mind. And so that, that sense that um, from year to year, um, one needed to be able to change policies um, was really, you know, that's a legislative problem. Whereas uh, the, the early faith in the law as an eternal system that, Sure, it changed because of the revolution and because now we're dealing with a republic instead of a monarchy. But the basic building blocks of of uh, liberty remain the same. That sense that there was an eternal structure that they were working with, that was a, a sort of comforting security blanket for the judiciary and, and one that you see them reacting to and, and working with in a way that is very foreign from how modern judges behave. So, so maybe we should confront directly now, I think, which is the, the main thrust of the paper. This is this is the typical, you know, meandering of our show. We usually get to the heart of things around 45 minutes in. <laughs> um, but, but the heart of your paper is about uh, the impact of all of this, everything we've been talking about, institutional form, so uh, culture, institutional cultures. Uh, and biographically, the fact that Kent occupied these different these, positions as right. a judge and a part of the Council of Revision and the guy who they hired to revise the statutes. And it's sort of he's the zealot as of did New the, York law. The mayor point. of Charleston and there are other figures, right, who, who had this kind of similar orbit around different institutional right. positions. 
And so, so what does all of this mean for statutory interpretation? And, um, and how did, how was there this comfort with, um, what, what we, what some call equitable interpretation, um, or, uh, resort to the, um, mischief rule of interpretation or basically treating statutes like common law is another way of looking at it. Um, right. that, that this was a much more common form, or at least again, subject to this paper bias you talked about earlier on, like the, the decisions that survive, maybe ones which do this disproportionately. So it's hard to know what everybody did in all these circumstances, but at least this was a viable form of statutory interpretation. Do you want to, you want to set the stage for that or tell us what, what does it all mean? <laughs> what does it all mean for today or what yeah, did it mean for No, what did, what did it mean for then? What is your theory of the, uh, of the role of the mischief rule and how it connects to the things that we've been talking about, for example? Right. Well, so uh, this was an era in which um, uh, interpretation, statutory interpretation, the role of the judge is really um, to engage in statecraft. It's um, they are partners with the legislature and the governor and creating institutions that work fundamentally for citizens in a, in a situation where everything feels very untested and new and vulnerable. Um, and what you have in on the benches of these states with uh, the leading jurisdictions in America, Massachusetts, New York, South Carolina, Virginia, are people who have had experiences in multiple levels of government and who feel as though they are you know, both patriotic to their states and responsible for their state's continuous um, existence as viable republics. And they're willing to do what it takes to make that happen. Um, and that sense of responsibility means that they're, wherever they're sitting in government, they're not just going to look at the problem in front of them um, and say, this is my purview. I'm going to leave it to the governor or to the legislature to do the rest. There wasn't that sense of faith that other institutions would be able to pick up the slack if they left some of the problem unaddressed whenever a problem came before them that was a problem of government governance that might actually affect citizens' lives. So, you know, you see members of government um, doing all that they can with what's in, with the project that's in front of them. And when it's a, a matter of statutory interpretation, especially of public acts, you know, acts that involve the uh, rights and duties and obligations of citizens on a grand scale or that initiate policy projects or, um, or that are spending the public fisc um, on a major investment like the Erie Canal, um, you see judges doing what it takes to make those things work. And, and you give that example with Kent, right, with these these uh, three statutes about um, doing what needs to be done. I'm going to butcher it. But do, and this do, is do the Bradshaw what, case, right, the, where, yeah, where yeah. he's interpreting these uh, canal statutes. And, and interprets them together holistically, right? The canal, like one of them allows you to do what needs to be done to move the things to make the canal. Another one involves like relocating roads, right? And this right. case arises where they want to relocate a private toll road or turnpike which is, you know, not a, maybe not a public road, but maybe you could like this seems this part of it actually seems a little bit more modern because a public road you could interpret not as something owned by the public, but which is something which is open to the public. So that seems like to the modern ear, like the right. kind of thing that people could disagree about. But then, as you point out, the statute makes no provision for compensation. Well, that one doesn't. But the 1817 but the other one, one does. does and so you put it all together. Yeah. But, but again, he as you say, like he interprets these three things together to do what needs to be done. And it's like the legislature wanted to get, get these canals done. <laughs> And so I'm going right. to interpret these all together to, to accomplish that purpose, even if it means adding to the statute text, which is clearly absent. I mean, yes. that example was striking to me. Uh, absolutely. And um, when you compare 
his interpretation of those acts to private acts that involve takings of property without compensation, where he would require um, citizens to go back to the legislature and wait the year or two it took um, to get a friendly legislature to pass an amendment that would allow them to compensate the plaintiff uh, before they impinged on private land to build, for example, a turnpike. Um, it is all the more striking that <laughs> what he's doing is saying, look, this Erie Canal project must go forward because if we spend even more money waiting um, in order to satisfy um, individuals who might be harmed by it in the process, um, instead of just you know reading in a compensation statute where none exists and, and going forward, um, it will fail. And he considered that to be in his that concern, that policy concern, that legislative concern to be in his purview as a judge. And it's funny because in the private bill context, you could say, uh, consistent with his practice, that look, even there, I'm also vindicating the public project. And in the private bill context, the public project is when you want something like this, you get it through a private bill, not mm -hmm. from me. Mm -hmm. uh, that there's there is a public purpose there too, and but it's a role oriented purpose as opposed to a goal oriented purpose. And the, in the former case, he's saying we've got a goal here, and it's to get this darn canal done, and we're going to get it done. Was it, was litigation protracted in the spirit? So I'm just wondering, like, how much of this is? Look, it's July. And if we do what you want to do, which is to wait for the legislature to speak again, we're going to be waiting until February, at the earliest. Um, was was any of this expedient in a in a time sense? Um, uh, well, maybe, you know, if yeah. he would, if he were dealing with a private bill that had to do with downstream mill owners and the flooding of fields upstream, that there could also be a very time sensitive um, issue for the individual plaintiffs and defendants. So it's not just time, um, and it's also not just um, him being a policymaker. There's all there's a third element to this that I want to make sure that we mention, which is there were very strong um, norms that inherited from English law practice of a difference between how one is supposed to interpret a private bill and how one is supposed to interpret a public bill. And, you know, today, uh, this understanding of like, whether you should apply textualism or purposive, purposivism, which is very hard to pronounce, yes. um, to a statute is all a matter of, um, you know, jurisprudential um, ideology. Um, and you apply the same jurisprudential orientation no matter what the statute is about. That would have been completely strange to members of Kent's generation who saw different kinds of statutes as completely different kinds of law that require different tools. So when you're dealing with something like the Erie Canal Project, you've got this toolkit that allows the judge to participate with the legislature in making it happen. Whereas when private bill, when private um, citizens are coming at you with a private bill that is merely for their own benefit, um, you have a, a long English heritage that says, you need a, sta a copy of that statute with you before I can even take cognizance of it, and I'm going to interpret it narrowly so as not to interfere with other people's rights. I wonder how much of this is... What's the this? The, the, the theory of institutional form and interpretive role. Um, how much of that is like... Because looking back, it seems like a pragmatic adaptation of institutional tools to solve 
prevailing social problems. In other words, you know, we, we're, we're people who are expanding and building and doing these sorts of things. We have this experience with England. Like, how should we organize ourselves to solve public problems? And this may, you know, you could tell a story where this is the kind of thing you might do, right? Institutions that overlap in this way, but not that way, that um, have some accommodation of, of democratic values, but also of like getting things done. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, but uh, you know, I'm hesitant because of course, you know, uh, we're humans, we're meaning making machines. And when we look back, of course, we might try to tell a story about how that makes sense. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure. But um, uh, whereas, you know, today, so much of the story about institutional role is about legitimacy, right? right. It, 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 there's a certain kind of rationality of legitimacy, like, you know, the legislature should do this be, because um, it has, you know, in the, it, courts should do this, but not that because they aren't democratically accountable. Like it's at, the, at a certain level of abstraction about legitimacy, which seems to drive the debate about who should do what. Yeah, and, and that's another contextual difference um, with this generation and the couple generations that followed, is that they had participated in the constitutional conventions and debates um, that created the institutions they were sitting on. So they knew intimately that there were different views about how those institutions should work, and that there had been other options on the table, maybe options that they had championed. And so when they become a judge, uh, and they had argued over what what judging means in a, in a constitutional convention context, um, they might think, well, you know, here I am, my view prevails. There was also the fact that these constitutions were revised, um, you know, every 20 years for the first part, for the, you know, New York had a constitution that lasted from um, the late 1800s to 1820, but then there was a major revision that changed a lot of these institutions um, and, you know, completely really did them. Many constitutions were changed in the 1830s, the 1840s, and the 1850s. Um, is, that, is that part of this things, Jacksonian wave that you talk about that yes. changed a lot of this? Yeah, right. But it started even before Jackson. You know, um, it was the rise of a sort of populist movement that would mm-hmm. lead to Jackson. But uh, the 1820s are before Jackson is sort of a major you know, player in the debate about what American jurisprudence should be like. So it's it's. A situation in which instead of the ossification of roles we have today, where constitutions feel fairly fixed and immutable, these constitutions uh, were subject of debate between the players that are facing each other in court and actually implementing them. They know intimately that they were open to interpretation because they had to try very hard to interpret them. And then uh, they're open to changing if they don't work out. So you can experiment because if, if the people don't like it, they will let you know. So how, how much symmetry do you see between that changeover uh, from the 1800s to 1820s and then the Jacksonian period and the immediate post-Civil War period to the rise of legal realism, like the, the you know, getting to Lochner and then, and then getting to the death of Lochner? And this is basically the era of the rise of the age of statutes, as Guido Calabresi has called it, right? The, uh, um, and, and of course, his book, Common Law for the Age of Statutes, very, there's a lot about it that argues for a kind of return to this like interinstitutional dialogue. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yes. If only he had known when he was writing that, that judges did interpret statutes in a common law way. Right. Um, and they did strike them down essentially for non-constitutional reasons, even if they didn't oh, yes, phrase it in done. that way. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting that the change from this kind of um, uh, law as if it's from one mind view mm-hmm. and, and, the, and, the, and the effort of judges to create to kind of work law free into the 
into an expression of a rational mind, but one which is intimately concerned with current prevailing social problems like canal building to this mm-hmm. kind of Jacksonian explosion of, of you know, populist control, which included populist distrust of legislatures. Um, right. it's a, you know, there are a lot of differences. I don't want to overstate it. And then this period of, um, of formalism after the Civil War, uh, and then you, legal realism kind of develops these uh, – um, develops a response to it, right, and, and kind of reinvigorates um, uh, um, kind of legislative will with the cooperation of courts. So I, I'm not sure exactly yeah, how it works, oh, okay. but yeah. Let me, yeah. Uh, let me tell you the story that I think. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm writing about this in, in the sort of final chapters of, of the book I'm writing on the subject. I'm so happy to hear there's a book. This is very exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in its initial stages, but it, it, it's, it's coming. The 19th century is characterized by a pretty consistent distrust of legislatures. And, um, you know, the Federalist attitude toward legislatures is in a very different tone than the Jacksonian distrust of legislatures. And yet there is this persistent disdain toward um, a suspicion of a fear of legislative discretion um, that is a source of power and legitimacy to judges. This idea that judges are the guardians of the people and that, you know, the move to elections under Jackson um, only frees them from legislative influence and confirms them as the the people's guardians um, is very strong in the 19th century. Um, And that's in part because of the kinds of work that legislatures do, this distributing favors to individuals um, on a case by case basis. It is often, uh, you know, highly influenced by corruption and by bribery. Then after the Civil War, um, you start to see a change. First of all, there are many more generally applicable statutes of the type that we expect today. You know, um, in the 1840s through 1860s, um, there are a bunch of constitutional amendments in the states that um, that limit private legislation and limit the kinds of favor, doling out activities that legislatures can engage in. And then after the Civil War, legislatures start to get involved in the business of welfare legislation, you know, doing things, writing broad general statutes that are actually helpful to people. And people start to look to their legislatures to do something different as as also their guardians, also their advocates. Um, And you see a change, therefore, in what people expect of judges. Suddenly, the judges are not so necessary anymore as the the um, you know nursemaid of the legislature, the the person who's interposing himself between um, the the people and their legislature, and actually those inter that kind of interference starts to look a little bit obnoxious, and it's the it's the conflict between the judiciary that still has that nineteenth century sense of its role toward the legislature as its um, as its check and its nursemaid, and the people who are starting to expect that legislatures are working on their behalf that you see in Lochner and its aftermath and all of the um, scholarship um, and legislation that come as a result of Lochner trying to, you know, newly explain the role of the legislature in the 20th century and the much more limited role of the judiciary is, you know, the result of that clash between a judiciary that's stuck in a 19th century view of its role and um, a people that's moved forward into a 20th, 20th century view of the possibilities of a legislature that passes generally applicable legislation as its main job. Now, in the paper, there's a, 
there's a portion where you're talking about um, the post-Civil War period in in law, or at least legal rhetoric, as relying more heavily on the notion of legal science uh, and a a, a sort of a move to vindicate a view of judicial expertise. Like, it's okay that we're acting like we have this special expertise because we do, uh, and it is a science. Uh, It's a special kind of science, but it's a science. And so when we tell the legislature, hey, you've gone too far, uh, or this isn't the right way to do that, it's, it's, it's not because uh, we're trying to grab power from somebody else. It's because we're trying to simply provide the benefit of our special expertise. Um, yes. And mm-hmm. that, that sort of, w- when, you, when you use that, that model, uh, when, you, when you say that's your conception of what you're doing, um, then if, pop, if popular will reflected in legislative output starts to, you know, go into places that, uh, that don't seem uh, proper uh, to the, 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 quote, legal scientist, the legal scientist can explain, like, here's, here's the physics diagram of why you're in the wrong location now. Uh, and I suppose that rather than sort of reshaping the legislative output to make sure that it works given its purpose... Uh, maybe you need to add a few words. Maybe you need to take away a few words. At this point, you've got the more brittle uh, possibility of you just say, look, it's invalid. Right. Yes. And uh, so the rise of legal science is not just a reaction to, um, you know, a, a manipulative reaction to the rise of populism. Um, it's also the judiciary's um, authentic cultural transformation, along with the rest of America, to the forces that gave rise to Jacksonianism. And part of the, that sort of new American cultural orientation is a preference for um, understanding things as a science and understanding things as areas of specialty that any person given enough education could do. So you go from the sages of the law, which is sort of, you know, the, the, the language of personality, of genius, of, um, of statecraft that you see in Kemp's generation, um, to these are these excellent technicians who really know what they're doing um, because they've read all the books. And you two young men could read all the books and be just as good of a judge as these people. But in order to make that cultural attitude, um, to assert that cultural attitude, they also sort of retreat from statecraft. And so suddenly the interpretation of statute, and especially interpreting whether or not it's um, valid, becomes the much more modern exercise of comparing one text to another and seeing if they conflict. Mm -hmm. You see the rise of judicial review in the decades before the the Civil War. Um, You know, in the 1790s, if you count the cases in the states, there may be nine cases of judicial review. um, And in most of those cases, it was followed by the legislatures of the states reprimanding the court and removing (laughs) Um, the judges from office because they were so outraged, you know, so the idea that Marbury v. Madison established judicial review is just a complete fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even the Supreme Court didn't get away with judicial review. States ignored um, the Supreme Court's judgments on their statutes and, and um, went against them in various ways. Um, but by the time of the Civil War, it has become uh, much more common and much uh, more accepted, in part because of this understanding that judges are simply engaging in the scientific exercise of um, 
you know, applying their expertise to statutes and saying whether or not they work. That is a much less flexible and much less powerful thing for a judge to do than to be able to take the text of a statute and, and change it into the statute that he wants. It turns judicial power from a positive force into a mere negative. Um, and it, it means a retreat from certain kinds of policymaking and certain kinds of engagement. Of course, because the, the number of topics on which statutes were written back then was not as broad as it is now, we're not talking about an age of statutes along the lines that Calabresi was concerned about. Um, this preserves this vast field of creativity in the areas of torts and criminal law and property and all the other things that are still almost uniquely judicial concerns. In, in terms of the second half of the 1800s, like we're not yes. yet to the explosion of general statutes on all manner of topics. But once, right. once there is this explosion, it's interesting because it seems to be a story that before the Civil War, we have judicial management of policy through frank engagement with the legislature, or at least more frank engagement of the In legislature. In part because of this blurring between roles. Right, right. And then and ap- we're talking about an even shorter period. We're talking about before the rise of Jackson. Right. Yeah, that's what would be interesting. I really can't wait for the book because because that's that that that's that period where I'm like it seems like a transitional period that I really don't know a lot about other than we've I know that that's really when the slavery crisis becomes a, a crisis and there is this kind of interstate. I'm interested to see how the, how all of that connects. But um, yeah. but then after the Civil War, you, the, the means change right now. It's it's not about frank engagement with the legislature. It's it's uh, it's judicial review. As you say, it's a negative rather than a positive. Um but but that that means has persisted despite changes in goals, right? That uh, you know before the end of the Lochner era, it's about curbing um, legislative progressive actions, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then it becomes a tool to uh, bring to heel recalcitrant state legislatures after the civil rights era, and now it's whatever it is, right? That that the the tool persists even as the judicial role in policy and its positions on policy have have changed, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, seeing how this tool has been used and how other tools like um, uh, interpretation have been used over the course of our long history without many changes in constitutional structure, um, or at least with some of the same rhetoric about the values we hold in constitutional structure, really opens up the uh, the possibilities. Mm -hmm. You know, um, why do we think that um, separation of powers is exactly what it is today? Why don't we know that we are in a moment of transition, that we are an expression of our time now, just as we always have been. You know, this, um, you called the, the, the Jacksonian period, you know, a moment, an interestingly fluid moment of transition. Um, the period that I talk about in this paper, um, 1800, the 1790s, 1820s, was also an interesting moment of transition, but you know, the fact is, mm. historians know we are always always in <laughs> exactly, of, and we we tend to think of what we're dealing with now as fixed and as final. Um, but you know, a casual glance at the record will show that the next generation will bring something completely different. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, and and to think, you know, I think one of the regrettable things is the degree to which so many state courts. Um, are, are kind of locked into federal interpretation. So when they're interpreting their own constitutions, they very often cite and follow federal interpretations, even as those change. And right. when there are so many more innovative possibilities for courts and their role so that, you know, states are not necessarily bound, even if the federal government 
uh, wants to be continued, uh, wants to continue to be bound into this very, into a more rigid separation of powers. Like, why not like a Calabresi style uh, interbranch dialogue, which is in part a return to this early period. Um, Some frankness would be helpful here, I think. It would be interesting. It really is a bummer, isn't it? Because the Supreme Court has made clear, and maybe they would change their mind if the, they were presented with some of what I'm about to say. But, oh boy. but if, you, if you treat the guarantee clause as the— You're about ex- to change the course of legal history, <laughs> If you treat the guarantee clause as the extremely lame and weak thing they say it is, uh, which is, boy, everyone's got a lot of running room. Uh, I mean, it seems like the most creative thing we've got is that Nebraska has a unicameral legislature. But other than that, uh, people really are not using the institutional flexibilities and capabilities they have. I mean, there, there's election of state court judges. There, There is the election, you know, the the um, the state constitutional non-unitary executive branches, right? You know, the, you elect the attorney general, you elect the lieutenant governor. So there, sure. there are these forms are different. And, po- but... and popular initiative is a way to make law that is um, not in the federal system, but is mm-hmm. contemplated. In and apparently you can remove entire systems. Supreme Courts in the states now. I'm... <laughs> you can if you're West Virginia. Um, but it, I just think there's less experimentation than I would hope in the states, in, in, given how wide the running room is. Right. Yeah, do you have thoughts on that, Farah? Well, you know, I, I don't have original thoughts, but I was just talking to another um, uh, a colleague of mine, Bridget Fahey, who's uh, a friend who's you know in the process of finding an academic job, who has this fascinating um, view on the diversity of of you know constitutional forms among the states, and she points that out to me yesterday that the the there are. Um, you know, various methods in which states diversify their their constitutional structure, like Arizona put its redistricting commission under the heading of legislature in its constitution. Mm-hmm. But then the Supreme Court completely disregards those and says, no, this isn't, a, you know, and, and applies um, ways of thinking about um, structure of government that, that simply reproduce the federal structure instead of respecting the choices that states have made. Um, to, um, you know, express citizen preferences differently. Um, So, uh, you know, there may be a story of, uh, you know, greater flexibility and diversity in state structure than one anticipates that is then, you know, not really respected or regarded on the federal level. Which obviously is a deterrent to engaging in the experimentation. Right, yeah. If you feel like it's not going to be well-received or you're, it's not really going to have the influence that you intend. It's sort of like, well, okay, why bother? And I guess right. on, the, on, the, on, the, on the flip side here, if a court, if we're going to empower courts, for example, to serve a different institutional role in some states and to be in more of a dialogic relationship with legislatures, um, it, it does call to mind that maybe there should be a return and you can get this kind of in a secular way from the common law, but to a theory kind of like natural law that there is a there is a rational thing called the law that judges are good at 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 like knowing and expounding and and maybe that's just comes from treat like cases alike it, but uh, but a non-natural law based theory about laws um not rationality but like it's 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 single authorship this is maybe calls to mind Dworkin here a little bit, but I'm just thinking uh, in terms of the citizen's interaction with the law, it, it, there's something like satisfying that you're interacting with a thing which is like a human, 
You know what I mean? Um, that yeah. that you are in a human dialogue with a thing which has admittedly some authority over you, but which you're in more of a relationship with, right? You're not just a subject of, of something which has whims that you can't read. So it, uh, that's a, a long and weird way of just saying that like uh, that, that a companion to a reinvigorated role for courts to engage in something like equitable interpretation in some states that want to allow it is that courts have this have a perspective on the law that they can offer, which is not purely like transactional statute by statute, mm. issue by issue, right? It is, even if you don't think it's a seamless web in a Dworkinian sense, or that, that it is, that courts have some special um, ability or at least some, just some special role in telling a story of the law, which is more human um, or more. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. what, yeah, one, one thing that I just want to point out about something you just said is that you seem to um, to presuppose that something would need to be done in order to allow courts, either at the state or the federal level, to engage in equitable interpretation. Um, that you know, it, it just shows that the, our current understanding of separation of powers and the hegemony of Scalia's textualist interpretation of what what judging requires, even if you don't agree. Um, that that is the starting point, has become so powerful that you think of it as though it is a constitutional requirement uh, where something would need to change in order to go in a different direction. But actually, you know, the, the, the structure of government that allowed for equitable interpretation in Chief Justice Marshall's day or in Kent's day in New York um, has not changed uh, yeah. to disallow it. It's simply the culture that has changed and our expectations of what judges do that have changed. Um, but if judges want to um, uh, explore the purpose of a statute first before looking at the text, there's nothing in our system of government that prevents them from doing that. And actually, that might be kind of helpful. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I, I am much more of a purposivist. I, I, what I'm suggesting is that that we would need a, a larger embrace of a partnership theory of some kind. Um, right. Which would be a, it could you know it could be a return to the same kinds of theories that animated that partnership in the 1790s to 1820s. But I have a sense it would be something new. Guido Calabresi offers a lot of a lot of that theorizing in common law for the age of statutes. But um, uh, but you're right. It would be an alternative to kind of the hegemonic embrace of this. You know, this is just what courts are. Um, uh, right. Formalism of I, the current age. Isn't, yeah. it, isn't it ironic that the same people who embrace that formalism also um, see this period that I'm talking about, Kent's era, Marshall's era, as the source for yeah. much of their understanding of what is legitimate in judging and, and what is legitimate in interpretation, without fully um, appreciating that these are not their models. You know, these judges um, do not perform their work in a way that a person like the late Justice Scalia would appreciate um, or agree with. And, you know, as a historian, I've got to say that's okay, that there are other reasons to be textualist. Um, uh, but, you know, opening up a view to what judging in that period was actually like also gives a little bit of play in the joints of what you expect from judges and, and, and what you think of as possible. Awesome. Well, I've just realized what I want us to spend our second and third hours in this conversation <laughs> talking about. The problem is we're not, we don't have second and third hours uh, to talk about. Um, although we are going to have you back to talk about the book. 
Oh, great. When Wonderful. It's, when it's, if, you, if you'd like to join us, we'd certainly love to have you to come back and Let's talk about the book when it's Give finished. her a chance to figure out how this went. <laughs> right. As she, it, exactly. You, you can have a, a, a polite, you can politely decline our future invitations and say, ah, not, not, never again with those jokers. But I do, but I do want to, okay, so we, we don't have the second and third hours, but I just want to put, so for future, for our future conversation, I do want to, I'm fascinated to hear thoughts if you have any about um, the relationship between uh, James Kent and Joseph Story, including the degree to which they interacted in any way, actually, physically, like, did they know each other? Were they friends? Whatever. You know, um, uh, I'm fascinated to talk about, a be- of course, and Christian is, uh, can see this, this coming is, a mile away. I know. You, um, this is that, why you picked, this is it's why not you true. Picked, yeah, it is absolutely. No, because it's at the end of the paper. I didn't know. <laughs> um, the, the connection with legal process and the way that's a contemporary iteration of some of these, uh, instead of dutiful agent, uh, formalistically implementing a transmission belt, uh, they're instead a sort of a faithful partner uh, for uh, vindicating legislative purpose. Um, you know, there's the, you, that that whole vista gets opened uh, at the end of the paper. So there's just so much to talk about when you come back. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you guys. And I hope we meet in per- person sometime. That would be great. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.